Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We're in the studio with Giorgio Giorgio. Giorgio spent over 30 years sailing the world's oceans. He was the first navigator on the ship Mischief for the famous English explorer H.W. Tillman. He also hunted for Sir Francis Drake's lost treasure on Robinson Crusoe Island. George, tell us about navigating the mischief on the world's oceans. Navigating the mischief. Actually, I had never heard about Tillman. I didn't know who he was or anything. I had gone out fishing out of a small port in Chile called Quintero, which is about 40 miles north of Valparaiso. I was coming back from a fishing trip when we saw, this was a small fishing village, and there was this Rolls Royce parked at the dock with a gentleman very well dressed with a bowler hat and a man with a pea coat. And when we climbed up the steps on the landing, the well-dressed gentleman introduced himself as the British ambassador in Valparaiso. And he said, and this is Major Tillman, who is uh, sailing to England on board mischief. He has been exploring the glaciers in southern Chile, in, in Patagonia, and he needs a navigator to take him back to England. It was uh, 1956. So... I, not having seen the boat or anything, I know it was a sailing ship, but I didn't know what size or anything. It turned out it was a 50-year-old Bristol Channel pilot boat, about 45 feet in overall length. The type of sailing boat that would bring the pilot out of the harbor in Liverpool or in ports like that. I accepted immediately without seeing the ship. It looked like a nice adventure, and I became his navigator. And now there's a little problem. I didn't have a valid passport I went with him when he wrote the crew list and set himself as owner of the mischief and me as navigator and the other fellows as seamen. And the Chilean authority says, Mr. De Giorgio can't go. He doesn't have a valid passport. And I don't, didn't know why I needed the passport to leave Chile, but that's how it is in some of these countries. You know, you need all kinds of safe conducts and permits and things. So I accompanied Tillman to the dock when he was going to sail, but I was escorted by two Marines, Chilean Marines, to make sure I didn't jump on the ship and sail away with him. So being escorted by the military, he signaled me that he wanted to talk to me before he sailed, and he said, Quintero, midnight, no lights. That meant we were going to meet a few miles north of the coast of Chile in the middle of the night with him showing no navigational lights. So I went to that Quintero fishing port, got a boat from some fishermen to take me out, and we went out near midnight, and the mischief came and picked me up, and we were on our way to England. It was quite an experience. He was basically a mountain climber. He had summited the highest mountain before Hillary climbed Mount Everest, Nanda Devi. So he was a famous, famous British explorer and man of action. He was also a war hero. He had liberated the town of Belluno in Italy during World War II and given the keys of the city. He was a, quite an explorer. 
he had crossed Africa on a bicycle, on a single-speed bicycle, from east to west, and in between climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and wrote a book about it. So he is a world-famous explorer and fun to sail with. He had a good sense of humor and had taught himself how to sail. And uh, we sailed from Chile to Panama, from Panama to Bermuda. We got into a storm after we left the banks of Newfoundland and were dismasted. And on the jury rig, arrived on the south coast of England, in Lymington, Hampshire. So it was quite an experience. Tell us about navigating the mischief on the world's oceans. Navigating the mischief? Uh, I did celestial navigation. You know, in celestial navigation, basically what you do is you take the angle of the lower limb of the sun or the moon, the center of Venus. It has a center. <laughs> you have to compensate for that. Three other planets and about 50 stars, all of first magnitude except for the Polaris, the North Star, which happens to be near the North Celestial Pole. That's why it's important. And you use your sextant and a chronometer because you have to know Greenwich Mean Time all the time and uh, to figure your longitude. It was quite a bit of work because we didn't have calculators then. It was all done on paper, and it took you like maybe half an hour to determine your position because you had to go like to the 10th decimal point. And if you made a mistake, in the end it ended up that you were 200 miles away from where you were, and you had to start all over again. So it was quite a challenge. At the times when we, when we didn't see the sun or the stars or the moon or the planets because it was cloudy, we did uh, dead reckoning, which where the art of navigation comes in because celestial is the science of navigation and dead reckoning is the art of navigation where you figure how much you have drifted, what speed you were doing really according to the trail log, things like that, you know, the wind. It was uh, quite a challenge. Mischief, fortunately, was a very slow boat. It took us a month to get from Valparaiso to Callao, Peru, which is only 1,300 miles. It took us almost a month to get from Callao to Panama. Then after we crossed the Panama Canal, it took us exactly a month to sail from Panama to Hamilton, Bermuda. And then another month to get to England, dismasted. Has crossing through the Panama Canal changed much since 1956? I don't think it has. I understand they're doing some work on it now. The Panama Canal was basically designed first and worked by Ferdinand de Lesseps, who did the Suez Canal. But the Suez Canal has no locks. It's sea level all the way. Panama Canal, you have to go up and then down on the, up on the Pacific side, then down on the Atlantic side. So it was a phenomenal amount of work, and they were plagued by malaria, and other difficulties, so the Lesseps lost the contract. And then the United States came, and General Gorgas found out that they could uh, flood the mosquito lowlands, the ponds, the stagnant water, and drown the eggs of uh, the larva or something like that. So the U.S. finished building the canal. Georges, tell us about being on the boat with H.W. Tillman. What was it like to navigate? What time did you wake up? What time did you go to bed? What did you wear on the boat? What did you eat on the boat? Uh, whatever was available, we had a small ice box where we had our provisions with uh, dry ice, which lasted longer and was pretty cold. We picked up as much fresh vegetables and fruit as we could, and eggs, of course, and no live animals. We didn't have live animals. And one thing, he always wanted to have curry on Wednesdays. So we always had curry on Wednesdays. But he had spent a lot of time in India. And he liked curry. 
Well, we had no uniform, really. What We had the warmest clothes possible and oils, what they call oil skins or southwesters. It's, you know, that yellow, typical sailor's waterproof jacket and northwester hats, which overhang also your shoulder. And lots of wool? Lots of wool. On the boat, we, also, of course, had shifts. We were four hours on, eight hours off. So three of us steered the boat. I would have, for example noon to four o'clock in the afternoon, and then again midnight to four o'clock in the morning. So that was eight hours in 24. And other hours, we all took turns cooking and tending to the sails. And if we had to change all to course, we'd wake up the other fellows who were sleeping. And there was always something to do, navigation, cooking, trimming the sails. And when you got in storms, managing the boat so it wouldn't sink. (laughs) which we had to do in the North Atlantic. George, you ran into rough seas in the North Atlantic yes. when you were with H.W. Tillman. Yeah. Tell us about that. This incident on board Mischief was when we had left Bermuda, Hamilton, Bermuda. We went near the banks of Newfoundland, Cape Sable and all that, and then we turned towards England. And we got into a huge storm with following westerly winds, so there's a speed you can't exceed on the sailboat because you dig your own grave. You know, there's a formula that's according to the waterline length multiplied by a coefficient, and you should never exceed that speed because you fabricate a kind of wave where the wave is high in the bow and high on the stern, and then you, it's called sailing under. So we were very afraid of going too fast. That's called hull speed. Our hull speed was 8 knots, which is 8 nautical miles per hour. So we didn't want to exceed that, so we wouldn't founder and sink. So what you do is you trail warps, which means you let a very heavy rope go from the starboard side or the port side and then pick it up on the other side, and that acts as a sea anchor and makes the boat go only downwind because there's this friction from the rope and all that in the water, the drag. Then you throw oil in the water. A lot of people don't know that. You know, you have little canvas sacks full of heavy oil with your sailing needle which is triangular you prick the holes and throw it overboard and then this calms the seas the wave won't break so between the trailing line and the oil in the sea it makes it easier for you to sail but what happened we had the boom out because we were running before the wind which means the boom was at 90 degrees of the hull and we had a preventer going to the bow We rolled so much that we dipped the boom in the water. The boom cut loose, came around, broke down our backstays, and the mast came down. So we were dismasted. And in a hurry, we had to get rid of the stump of the mast and everything so that we wouldn't approach and sink. So we were left with about maybe eight feet of mast where it broke. And we jury-rigged another piece of boom that we had, and we sailed with just a jib all the way to southern England. That's why it took us a month to get from Hamilton, Bermuda to Lymington, Hampshire. George, you also hunted for Sir Francis Drake's lost treasure on Robinson Crusoe Island. Tell us the story behind this lost treasure. Sir Francis Drake, who was originally like a pirate, was then helped by the government of England to capture Spanish galleons, and he became a buccaneer, I don't know how you call it, but he was like a pirate with a patent to work for the British government. And he 
was the first to come around the tip of South America. That's why it's called the Drake Passage. Magellan had gone through the, the Strait of Magellan, but Drake came around Cape Horn and then came up the west coast of South America and plundered ports in Chile and Peru and Ecuador, practically destroyed all the forts in Panama, discovered San Francisco Bay. He was all over the place capturing galleons that came from Manila or from South American countries. He was supposed to turn in, I think, most of the treasure to the British crown, but he was allowed to keep part of it. But he kept more than his part of it. And there was a legend that he kept part of his share of the treasure in Juan Fernandez Island, which is about 360 miles offshore from Valparaiso, Chile. It's Juan Fernandez is the island which was the inspiration for Daniel Defoe writing Robinson Crusoe. It is now called Robinson Crusoe Island. It belongs to Chile. And they had discovered some archives and uh, relations from ancient mariners in England that Francis Drake had beached his ship in Juan Fernandez Island to cork the bottom, you know, to make the bottom waterproof, they call corking, and that he had left part of the treasure without taking it to England. So my father... And a partner of him and the president of Chile, Gabriel González Videla, came into a partnership. We came to the United States of Florida and bought a 98-foot schooner built in Holland and took it to Chile because he figured he needed a big boat to bring the treasure. And we went to Juan Fernández. We had protection from the Chilean army and the Chilean air force provided by the president. And we found nothing. We only found cannonballs. They used to make the ship lighter so they could beach it. So they would unload as much weight as they could, and one of the weighty things were cannonballs. So we found hundreds of cannonballs. So not having found any coin of the realm or anything, but cannonballs, my father had them mounted on mahogany stands with a plaque that said Drake Expedition 1951, I think it was. We didn't find the treasure. How long did you look for the treasure? Many months. Many months. And then after that, there was um, a legend that the treasure was not on Juan Fernandez Island, but in a bay called Herradura, which means horseshoe in Spanish. It's near Coquimbo in Chile. So we went to Coquimbo, and then a German company was also looking for the treasure. And actually, when we were camped, they fired at us. You know, they put bullet holes in our tents. And nothing was ever found, as I know. I don't know if by now they have found anything or not, but there's always that legend that Drake left treasure in South America. So I'm sure our listeners have an idea and using their imagination as to how you would go about finding a buried treasure if you have no clues as to where it's buried. But did you have clues? And if you didn't, how did you go about trying to find this treasure? They did have clues. They did have clues because the British Admiralty had sent an expedition with Lord Anson. I don't remember the year, but it was maybe the early 1800s. They had sent an expedition. It was called the Seahorse Expedition or something like that. They went to Juan Fernandez Island also because the Admiralty had investigated this and determined that Drake was for quite some time in Juan Fernandez Island careening his ships and caulking them. You see, this was right after World War II. Our company, my father's company, had a few metal detectors that they took to the island. They did a lot of digging, and like I said, they never found the treasure, but lots of cannonballs. How deep did you dig when you found a place that you wanted to dig? You know, they dug pretty deep. Actually, they had... Big army tents 
where they deposited the dirt. They they thought nobody knew what they were doing, but all the whole everybody on the island knew what was going on. And they would dig, and the earth they dug was deposited these tents. They started digging from inside a tent. And I remember that they dig they dug under somebody's house because the floor collapsed. Then everything was discovered. What happened to Drake? Why didn't he come back to claim his own treasure? Well, you know, I don't know how Drake died or where he died. It's a mystery as well. It's a mystery to me. <laughs> We're in the studio with George DiGiorgio. George was talking about 30-plus years of sailing the world's oceans with H.W. Tillman and hunting for Sir Francis Drake's lost treasure on Robinson Crusoe Island. George, let's play a song. Let's play a song that reminds you of sailing the world's oceans. What shall we do with a drunken sailor? What shall we do with a drunken sailor? What shall we do with a drunken sailor early in the morning? So you sang that song on the boat? We did. We sang several shanties, like we sang in Dublin's Fair City where the girls are so pretty, and sea shanties. Some of them were kind of uh, (laughs) X-rated. Back to Mandela and the Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. We are in the studio with George Giorgio. George, you've spent a lot of time sailing in the South Pacific and around the world. You have observed the changes that have occurred within cultures after the influence of the missionaries. Tell us about some of the changes and influences that you've seen in some of these islands from religions brought from other places around the world. Well, the changes I noticed were mostly confusion among the native people. Here are people who led a simple life on an atoll in the South Pacific and, let's say, worship the sun or the stars because they were far away and mysterious and the sun gives you warmth and makes the plants grow and... They just worship it as something that's high up in the sky and far away. Then a missionary would come to the island and talk to the chief and say, this is all wrong. You're worshiping the sun. You can't do that. You may burn in hell for that. You have to praise the Lord. So the natives were quite confused. I remember the case in the Gambier Islands where a priest would forbid me to promote native dancing, which they had offered to do for us. So mainly I think they confused them, and uh, there was so much competition between different religions that we would come to an island where the first missionary was a Catholic priest, and then comes a Protestant priest, and then comes a Jehovah's Witness, and then comes a Mormon, and that made the natives even more confusion because they see the differences between the missionaries one missionary say, well, you can't do this, but you can do that, and the other guy's wrong, and I'm right. So it was, I think it was mainly very confusing. The other thing that uh, caught my attention was the use of dressing, where the natives dressed for the climate, you know, very little to wear, just enough to protect them from the sun or the wind or whatever. But then here they come and say, no, you must cover yourself from your neck to your ankles, and here comes the muumuu which is uncomfortable, and I think it may be even uh, dangerous to your health. I would see men go to services in Tahiti when it was uh, more than 100 degrees and very humid, you know, like 95% humidity, and they were ordered to wear a white shirt and a tie. And the men sit on one side and the women on another side, and all the other women had to wear hats and dresses that covered them to the ankles. 
and I thought that was not natural. When did the influence mainly happen? Between what period of time? I think it started from the very beginning, from when the Spanish explorers came and discovered some of the islands and the French discovered the others and each one brought their own beliefs and religious beliefs. And Spanish came very, very early to the Philippines, for example, or the Solomon Islands and started, I would say, probably in the late 1500s and then progressed all the way to now. In 1954, we had this 98-foot schooner, which was purchased for the purpose of finding Drake's treasure. Since we didn't find Drake's treasure, my father thought it would be a good idea to go to the South Sea Islands, which I had visited before, but he hadn't. So we decided to sail from Valparaiso, Chile, to Tahiti via some of the outer islands. We went to a group called the Gambier Islands, and the main island there is Mangareva, and it's about a 1,000 miles east of Tahiti, where they have service like once a year, a schooner would come and bring them rice and goods, you know, and cigarettes, what have you. So we decided to go to that island, and we approached it from the wrong side. We didn't go through the main pass. We thought we could take a shortcut on the eastern side of the atolls. We hit bottom and uh, caused some damage to the keel and the propeller of our auxiliary. So we were towed by outriggers, three outriggers towed us to Rikitea, which was the capital of that little island thing. And the first to come on board was Father Michel. He was a French priest. He had been in the island for maybe 30 years. He came on board and he asked us, since we came from Chile, did we have any wine on board because he needed wine to consecrate for the services. So we gave him two bottles of Chilean wine. He went ashore. Pretty soon the chief of the island, the native chief of the island, came on board. And I was talking to him, and he said, you know, we wish we could show you how we used to dance and do a, a, a native festival, a cultural thing. I said, that would be fantastic. He said, would you really like it? I said, I really would. You like no objections? No. So... In the evening, we start hearing the drums beating in the jungle. The priest comes on board and says, I hear that you have authorized my people to do a show for you. I say, yes, I did. He said, well, you're not a captain anymore. You're a pirate to me. I'll go back and pray for you. While these people are dancing their lascivious dances for you, I will be praying for you in the chapel. Okay. On board, I had some magnesium flares war surplus magnesium flares that they used to throw on parachutes to land and I figured those would be good to do night photography by lighting it and using a camera. So I tied one of these under a big tree where they were going to dance. So the dancers came in and started dancing and in the middle of the dancing I said I've got to take pictures of this I'm going to pull the flare. I pulled the flare and it's magnesium. It a huge light and all of a sudden we saw this black kind of bird falling off the tree. It was the priest. He was watching the whole festivities from the top of the tree and he lost his footing when the light blinded him. And boy, it was really something. I laughed so much I had a belly ache. That was 1954. I know it was 1954 because that was the year my sister was 16 and she used to be sailing with me and we celebrated her 16th birthday on Easter Island, Rapa Nui. Georges, you were on a boat offshore of Chile when the 1960 Chilean tsunami hit. 
your boat survived landing in a field while all others were smashed on shore. What's it like to surf a sailboat on a tsunami wave and land on shore in a field? Yes, I was visiting a Chilean landing craft, the Isasa, at the mouth of the Calle Calle River, which is in southern Chile off the city of Valdivia. And uh, we were at the officer's mess having breakfast when one of the sailors came down and said, the water's going out of the bay. So we went on deck and we saw that we were already sitting on the bottom. The bottom was kind of muddy. It was at the mouth of the Calle Calle River near a town called Corral, where there's a, an iron foundry. And the water receded completely. They left the bay dry. Close to us were two German ships, the Skalbeit and the Hufferbeck. But these were regular ships. Ours was flat bottomed, so we were sitting on an even keel. The German ships heeled over, and they started abandoning ship. They set out Jacob's ladders, you know, these rope ladders that have wood rungs, and they all came down, crew and passengers, and they hadn't gone too far when we saw a black line, like in the horizon, the water coming back. And it came back, and there were no survivors. The whole crew of the Hufferbeck died, and there was nobody survived the other ship, the Hufferbeck. We were picked up. We had twin engines. It's very easy to maneuver a twin-engine ship. You put one ahead and one astern, and you can turn on your own length. But here we couldn't maneuver at all. The incoming water picked us up and took us up the mouth of the river, and we ended up in some fields about four kilometers or five kilometers from the ocean. And we got off and, you know, there was dead cows and flooded barns and what have you, you know, and we then made our way on foot to Valdivia. It was more that it lifted our ship. What happened was uh, that part of southern Chile settled, you know, it's a fairly new geological formation, and it settled down and that provoked a tsunami. I don't know the physics of a tsunami very well, but that's what happened. Water came out about 10 meters, more or less, a little bit over 30 feet. When that wall of water hit you, that you saw on the horizon as a black line, was there a lot of force behind it? Did it hit you and move you very fast without control? Describe what it was like when that water first hit the boat and took you. It picked us up and lifted us off the bottom and spun us. The skipper was trying to maneuver the boat, but he couldn't. I don't know if you've seen pictures of the tsunami in the Indian Ocean, you know, where the water just comes in rushing, you know, it just a high tide all of a sudden. From what I read, this earthquake that caused the tsunami was the largest ever recorded even until now. I think it was a 9.2 on the Richter scale. Was it chaos from when that water carried you and picked you off the bottom of the, the bay where the water had retreated to where it deposited you into the field? Was there any calm in that period of time? Uh, we thought we were going to die because we thought that the boat was going to broach and roll over or hit underwater obstacles and then uh, roll over. It just deposited us flat. So you were lucky because the tsunami, when it came into land, was forming features similar to those that one would find in a river, a high-volume river, because it was going yes, over features yes, on land. Yes, actually... The city of Valdivia was never the same. It was flooded to the third floor of many of the houses and buildings, and they rebuilt it, and now you can go with much vessels that have more draft. 
boats that could never reach Valdivia before can reach reach it now. It's almost like a deep water harbor. Was it a gentle landing when the tsunami deposited you into the field? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Did the water retreat right away? Yes, it did. But they didn't retreat to the original level. What happened, the land sunk. That's why it flooded the city of Valdivia, not because the water of the ocean rose. I think the water of the ocean remained the same after the tsunami, but the land had collapsed. It was lucky. It was a holiday. It's a big holiday. It was on May 21, which is a big historic festival in Chile, 21 de Mayo. What did you do after the boat gently landed in the field? Uh, We walked to the town of Valdivia, and we walked over some debris, I remember, and a nail pierced my shoe. But there was no doctor available, so I had to go to a veterinarian. And he put the hydrogen peroxide on it, and he said, that'll, that'll do it. George, let's play a song. Let's play another song that reminds you of sailing. Christopher Cross Sailing. It's kind of a smooth sailing song, you know. It's very gentle and almost spiritual sailing. It's The Trail Less Traveled with Mandela. We are in the studio with George DiGiorgio. George has spent over 30 years sailing the world's oceans. He was the first navigator on the ship Mischief for the famous English explorer H.W. Tillman. He also hunted for Sir Francis Drake's lost treasure on Robinson Crusoe Island. George, you worked numerous years molding Hobie cats and won in your class for Mexico in the San Diego to Acapulco sailboat race. And you also grew up in a wooden ship boatyard in Chile. What do you look for in a boat? And in your opinion, what makes the perfect boat? Uh, to me, the perfect boat would have to be a safe boat. It doesn't have to be a very fast boat. Like I like catamarans and trimarans a lot. They sail very fast, but they can heal to a point of no return where, where you can't write them up. So it doesn't matter how fast you go, you can capsize. So I would look for a boat that is safe, one where you can set the sails and it can sail without a helmsman, which we used to do. You set the sails right and the boat will keep on sailing without somebody at the helm. Or you use a wind vane that orients the boat again, easy to maneuver. A boat with a long keel. With a short keel, it's very hard to track in the water. I've been in boats that have steep, long keels, and you have to be at the helm all the time maneuvering. On a long keel, it tracks and goes straight. A divided rig. A divided rig means if you have one mast only and you get into a troublesome situation, you know, too much wind and you have to reef, what do you do when you have no sail up? If you have a divided rig, you can work on the main sail and in the meantime sail with the jib, which is one on the forward part of the ship, and the mizzen, which is a smaller sail on a smaller mast. So you never lose control. So I would say a divided rig, two masts, maybe even three, but that would make for a very large boat. Double-enders are very safe. Double-ended, where the bow is similar to the stern, they pitch a lot because they don't have anything to stop them from pitching. So you have to have an overhang in the stern that makes the boat stop pitching too much. And not too much sail, because I've been on boats where it was almost impossible to maneuver because there was too much sail for the wind and you didn't have a large enough crew, which happened to me on Fjord 3. 
who are sailed reefed, reefed which means you shorten the sail by tying the bottom part of the sail to the boom and then your sail becomes smaller, then you don't heal so much and it's also dangerous. And on that boat, the Fjord 3, I sailed all the way from Fiji to the Cook Islands, to Tahiti, to Honolulu, and to the United States reefed. And we had a good trip. Just because we didn't overdo it by overpowering the boat for the elements. So I wouldn't like racing boats. You know, the ones where we have big jibs and uh, spinnakers and uh, Genoa jibs. I would have a ship with a fairly short rig because what's the hurry? It was always important for us to have an auxiliary engine. <laughs> because you're in the doldrums, like, you know, near the equator. You are in a place where there's no wind and all kinds of seas colliding from the southeast trades to the northeast trades, and you get a choppy water and you're stuck there for days and days and days. So we always like to have a little auxiliary engine to push us through the doldrums and also to go in and out of harbor when there was no wind. Safe boat, have enough drinking water on board so you can stay a long time out at sea because you can always fish, but water's a problem. Sometimes you think you're going to go, oh, I'm going to sail from here to Tahiti and it'll rain, and it doesn't. It happened to us once where we almost ran out of water because we were going to count on rainwater. Then you have a canvas giant funnel that you spread on deck, and then it funnels into the tanks. We never got the rain. And then have a knowledgeable crew if possible, hoping not to get seasick because any sailor who says he has never gotten seasick and never ran aground is probably lying. George, you're one of the true global explorers of our time, and you have shared expeditions with the likes of H.W. Tillman, and your life changed when you met Hubert Wilkins at the age of seven. So my question is, what do all of these adventurers have in common? A vision. You know, what's beyond this ocean? What's beyond these icy landscapes? How do we get there a desire to discover. George, you were friends with Marlon Brando. Was he an adventurous person? Did you two ever adventure together? Well, I spent a long time in Tahiti when they were filming Mutiny on the Bounty. I think it was 1960, but I'm not sure. He was with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer down there in the bounty ship that was built in Nova Scotia. And I acted as an interpreter down there. I had no, no, no part in the movie itself. But I had known Tarita, the girl who fell in love with Fletcher Christian, the mutineer. I had known her since she was nine years old. She was a native of Bora Bora Island. Brando was quite a private person. He didn't want to live with the rest of the cast or the director or anything like that. So he lived in a little bungalow rented to him by the Chilean consul in Tahiti, Carlos Garcia Palacios. And I got to know him pretty well, uh, very well. I went fishing with him. I went stone fishing with him in Bora Bora. And like I said, I knew Tarita's family very well. And he was a nice guy. He always had a problem with weight. They even had to, you know, put some kind of a corset or something when he was doing mutiny on the bounty, and he was still pretty young. But uh, he was a good human being. He helped many children in Tahiti go to see a doctor and never made anything, any of that public. It was all done anonymously. Actually, he would go to the Los Angeles airport in disguise to meet some of these kids who came to Tahiti for treatment. George, you were Chile's first motion picture actor. Tell us about the adventure of acting in the movies. 
they had done some little movies in Chile before this, but Chile decided that since they didn't have a movie industry that was big, they wanted to present a movie at the Cannes Festival in France. So they decided to do it in cooperation with the Italian filmmakers. They made a contract, I guess, with an Italian director, an Italian movie company. They brought the actors and actresses and hired me as a technical advisor for sea scenes. The name of the movie was La Caleta Olvidada, The Forgotten Harbor. It was supposed to happen in central Chile on a very desolate part of the coast of Chile that had no electricity, no running water. They brought the cast and crew there, and after about just one day of filming, the villain disappeared. The Italian actor who was doing the villain took off. So... The director, Bruno Gebel, said, well, what do we do now? We came all the way from Italy to do a movie and we have no no villain. So he looked at me and said, uh, hey, you want to try? And he gave me a stiff drink of a thing called Aquavit. And I got the part. And we had no stuntmen. <laughs> Italian movie, Cine Verita. The bad guy gets away with a lot of stuff that he wouldn't hear. Uh, I got away with a girl. I killed the good guy. But when I killed the good guy, the fishermen who lived in that village of Chile thought that this was, was true. So they nabbed me and threw me in the water, almost killed me. They hit me with dead pelicans and birds. This was a dangerous situation during filming. George, for the past eight years, you worked at the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center and Cascade Historical Society in Great Falls. What do you think of Montana and the terrain's adventure potential? Mandela, I love Montana. I went to sea for many, many, many years. I lived out in the open. I got a good job when I retired from sailing in Los Angeles, and after about a month, I had had it. There was all the time the noise of helicopters flying over your apartment, the blood flight fighting the crips, sirens, crazy driving on the, on the freeway. So I said, this isn't for me. And I came on a vacation to Great Falls, Montana, and I said, you know, since I don't sail anymore, because there comes a point where you're a senior citizen, and even if there's a law that says there's supposed to be no, nothing against seniors, something, they get around it by not hiring you for one reason or another. So I knew I wasn't going to go to sea again as a captain. And I liked it here because of the wide open spaces. I started working for the Cascade County Historical Society in 1997, I think. And then I volunteered at the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center, and I lectured about Jean-Baptiste, the son of Sacagawea. And I enjoyed every minute of it, because I learned a lot of Montana history, and uh, I never wanted to move away. And I'm here. George, this question is not fair, but I would like to know, what is your most epic adventure story? All the years you can think back on. There were quite a few, but the one I remember the most was my father had built a custom boat. It was a catch, a 48-foot catch designed by John Alden, and we were delivering it to Miami. It was a beautiful boat, one-piece stem, one-piece kill, one-piece stern post, long planks of Chilean mahogany, grown frames, beautiful boat. It was a Stradivarius. There was six of us on board total. We sailed from Valparaiso to Callao, Peru, then from Peru to Panama, which was the Panama Canal. And on the other side of the canal, at Colón, we sailed from Miami. And there are lots of reefs and dangerous shallow water around Central America. 
and we were trying to sail as far away as we could from uh, Kitasueño Bank, which means take away your sleep bank, <laughs> Kitasueño. Kita calzones, which means it takes your pants off. <laughs> Those are the names the Spaniards gave them. We were sailing at a certain point of the compass when in the middle of the night, the helmsman dozed off or fell asleep for a minute. And when he came back to his senses, he steered in the wrong direction. Let's say he was going 330. And when he woke up, he steered 300. So he went like 30 degrees off course to port. And I was asleep in my cabin. And all of a sudden, bang, we hit something. First I thought it was a log or something, but then the boat stopped and it stays like that and I fell off my bunk. I go on deck and everybody's yelling. My dad is saying we're going to sink. The whole crew comes on deck and my father says, launch the dinghy. The dinghy was a small wooden boat, you know, about nine feet. And he gets on the boat first. And then he tells the guy to bring him cigarettes because he smoked a lot. He would not have food or drink, but he had to smoke. So he said, bring me cigarettes. Then they all come on the boat and they tell me, Georgie, you go launch the inflatable boat. It was like a French inflatable boat. And you could inflate it in a hurry if you used a CO2 cartridge, carbon dioxide cartridge. So they got on the boat and I saw that the boat takes off because they hadn't tied the boat to the yacht. So they were holding it with their hands instead of tying it with a painter. It was 1951. They drifted away on the dinghy without oars. So they were at the mercy of the current and the winds. They started drifting away, and I went in a hurry to the stern and inflate the rubber boat, and I slipped and hit my head on an air scoop, and I kind of felt pretty dizzy. And then I saw them disappear in the middle of the night. And the yacht, it was called a Surasso was uh, healing a lot, like maybe 35 degrees or something like that, and the water was coming over the sides. But pretty soon, it started writing itself up a little bit. The tide was coming up. It started writing itself up, and I went below decks, lifted the bilge floors, and saw that there was no water coming in. We were dry, so we hadn't pierced the hull. I started the auxiliary engine and just put it in reverse and floated again in deep water. And then daylight was coming. I said, which way did these guys go? And I said, okay, the current's going in such direction and the wind is going. And then I saw smoke near the horizon. And I motored towards them and there they were waving the outcasts on a little islet, you know, in the Mosquito Keys of Nicaragua. When I was alone on board, I thought that was it. I was going to drown or something because I didn't know which way I was going to swim or anything, you know. So that was a dangerous adventure, which ended pretty good. You know, my dad said, oh, I was his hero and I had saved them. And then we eventually went to Havana so that we had no damage to the boat and then got to Miami and delivered it. George, what do you know now that you wish you would have known in your 20s? Something I wish I would have done in my early years, like when I was 20, I wish I had gone to college. What would you have studied in school? I would have studied physics. George, what's your next adventure? My next adventure is uh, getting to be 100. In Montana? In Montana, definitely. Nice. Well, thank you so much, George, for coming on the trail less traveled and doing this show. We are honored to have you here in the studio, so thank you for making time for it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Let's end the show with three... Outdoor adventure tips. Don't panic. If you panic, you may 
lose your orientation and get into a state of despair. So don't panic. Just sit down and think. Tell your friends where you're going. This happens a lot. I've seen it happen here with snowmobilers and mountain climbers and cross-country skiers. Tell your friends where you're going and when you expect to come back so they can go looking for you. Try to assimilate and understand the cultures you visit. You know, don't go to McDonald's in Tahiti. Try to know what are their favorite pastimes. Try to get to know a little bit of their language. That always helps a lot. It's a sign of goodwill. Be respectful of other cultures and other religions. Try not to influence your own beliefs. Listen. Don't retire. I've seen this. You know, I'm pretty old now. And I've seen my friends retire and just sit there watching TV and eat snacks and not doing anything else and die. I think you have to stay young in your mind. Be curious what makes things tick. Be knowledgeable of new techniques and uh, new science. Keep up with the world. Try to take advantage of new technology. I mean, I enjoyed learning a little bit about computers, a little bit about, I uh, use GPS a lot. I'm kind of a gearhead. I always want to have the latest in compasses or watches that do different things, hiking staffs that collapse, footwear. I use a lot five-finger shoes because our feet are designed to move. Oh, boy. Protect your eyes. I used no sunglasses in Antarctica for two years, and I'm paying for it now. George, what song would you like to end the show with? Met Ernest Hemingway in Havana, Cuba, in 1951, I think. He was writing The Old Man on the Sea, for which he won the Nobel Prize of Literature. We were tied right next to his boat, the Pilar. My father and the whole crew took off with the high shots in Havana, and I was left alone, so Mr. Hemingway invited me to go take a tour of the city. We went to the sidewalk cafes, we went to Bacardi House, which had open house, and then he took me to the Copacabana, the Saint Souci, and the Montmartre. At the Copacabana, we listened to Josephine Baker, who was visiting Cuba then. And then he took me to a station called CMQ, CMQ, where Perez Prado was introducing the Mambo. And that was my experience in Havana. At that time, Castro was up in the mountains, ready to come down. Namaste. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to documenting humanity by collecting sound effects and interviews from the most remote locations around the planet. Subscribe to the free Trail Less Traveled podcast on iTunes. And check out traillesstraveled.net to follow the show as it is recorded on location around the world. I want to thank my guest for this week, Georges Di Giorgio. George has spent over 30 years sailing the world's oceans. He was the first navigator on the ship Mischief for the famous English explorer H.W. Tillman. He also hunted for Sir Francis Drake's lost treasure on Robinson Crusoe Island. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested outdoor adventure series, which aims to take its listener back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Every week, I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, 
how they do it, and how the community can start adventuring in the same fashion. My adventure tip this week pertains to condensation in your tent. Minimize condensation in your tent by keeping your vents open and clear of large packs or piles of clothes. For better circulation, keep a top and bottom vent open so that cool, dry air is sucked in as the hot, moist air leaves. That's it for this week, Missoula. But until next week, please get out there and shred the gnar. Because you know the thing about the gnar is it doesn't shred itself.